Time for swordplay. Alex, the well-known American theologian Hillary Clinton says young people are leaving the church because it has become too judgmental and alienating. That's right, Nick. No more wolf shaming. Don't make the predator wear his sheep's mask or sheep's clothing. Just let him come as he is, bad fruit and all. In fact, just think about all the trafficking, I'm, uh, I mean the traveling, our young people could enjoy if people like Hillary were in charge of children's ministry. Nice. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am like Mexico. Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. Yeah, we couldn't cover the whole chapter. As we accumulated our notes, there was just too much to cover, so we're splitting it up into two episodes. And you may have noticed that this episode and the previous episode had a gap of about seven weeks, mm-hmm. and that's because... Uh, my wife and I were busy welcoming our new baby boy into the world. Yay, so, congratulations. Yay. But now it's time to get back to work. So, Nick, <laughs> we have some cleanup to do, as our audience may or may not remember. There's a few thoughts there at the end of First Peter chapter 1 that we'd like to follow up on, and that'll flow us into chapter 2. So, Nick, take it away. What text does Peter quote at the end of chapter 1? And how does he apply it to his readers? So we're looking at verses 24 and 25. That's right. Chapter 1, 24, 25. All flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The text that Peter quotes from the uh, Hebrew Bible, we call it the Old Testament, is Isaiah 40, the latter part of verse 6, as well as verse 8. And most scholars believe that the larger context, Peter has the larger context of Isaiah 40 in mind, specifically verses 1 through 11, that that Peter has that whole text in view, which is typical, by the way, I think, for every New Testament writer, when they quote from the Hebrew Bible, they have the larger context of that quotation in mind. Paul is notorious for that. And so... uh, Peter, he introduces this quotation with the word for, there in verse 24, for, indicating he's confirming what he's just written about God's word. The Isaiah 40 passage was originally written for exiles under Babylonian rule. No doubt, the question of God's faithfulness to his covenant loomed large for many. Comfort, comfort my people, Yahweh says. And so to answer their questions, uh, Yahweh says that his word stands forever. Everything else fades, but God's word is fixed. Everything else shrinks, but God's word stands. Indeed, Yahweh promised that the whole world would see his glory. Uh, In verse 5 of Isaiah 40, you get this idea of a universal theophany, and that was something that was achieved to a certain degree in the return uh, to the land. Um, when uh, Cyrus sent the people back. However, for Peter and other Jewish people contemporary with him, most notably the Apostle Paul, though the return was significant in its own right, the lingering feeling of exile persisted. In fact, Peter's audience, 
They remained elect exiles, as we talked about in 1 verse 1. So Peter cites these verses which point to the larger context of Isaiah 40. And while the church remained elect exiles living under the oppressive rule of the Romans, these Christians could be certain that God would remain faithful to his covenant to them and his word would stand firm. And so all flesh is like grass. All flesh flesh speaks to all human beings, all humanity, uh, all its glory is reference to human accomplishments, human beauty, strength, intelligence, riches, and greatness. Peter says all humanity and all the greatness of humanity is like grass. It's like the flower of grass. In this comparison, Peter is pointing to the frailty of humankind. Hmm. And and also, literally, it reads, withered the grass, fallen the bloom, uh, very emphatic, and, and now here comes the contrast. Well, everything in the natural world is transitory. The word of the Lord, the word, the rhema. We typically think of the logos, but this is the rhema of the Lord is permanent. Uh, Lord here, instead of God, you'll find the word of God in uh, both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. Peter tr- substitutes Lord for God here. Um, but th- listen, the point is the word, uh, excuse me, the world fades, but the word is fixed. And again, word here, rhema in the original is the spoken word of God. It is the good news of Zion. This word, the end of verse 25 says, is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Uh, and so it's the good news of Zion, the good news of Jerusalem. And again, that alludes back to Isaiah 40 and verse 9. And that, of course, is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, John the Baptist, all all four Gospels quote that verse in order to apply it to John. Uh, and so it's fulfilled in John the Baptist and then also in Christ, preached to you, and therefore it is imparting life and grace, and it is precisely because God has so fulfilled his word that Peter and his readers can rely upon God as trustworthy. Uh, substantial fulfillment has taken place in the gospel, the good news. And at the same time, there's more in store. And so remain faithful and persevere. Stand firm in God's true grace, as he'll say in chapter 5 and verse 12. So uh, that is what Peter quotes, uh, some of the adaptations he makes in his quotation in order to apply it to his readers and what it meant for them today. It's what I see in the text. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree with what you noted there. I think we could even go a step further and say that the living and enduring word of God is also Jesus, especially in regard to his resurrected body. This is probably one of those moments where I'm going to say there's a both and, where there is the spoken word of God, but also the spoken word put on human flesh, Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is because we have the... Things noted in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 3, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now at the end, in verse 23 of chapter 1, we're born again through the living and enduring word of God. So which is it? Are we born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ or through the living and enduring word of God? I think Peter is essentially saying the same thing twice. Jesus' human body is now no longer like other human bodies in its frail and fleeting nature, uh, like the grass, like the flowers that fade away. And that's our hope, too, as the Christian. That's our faith in God, that through him, 
we will be made like him in our bodily resurrection, especially looking back at verse 21. Now, the uh, reference to Isaiah 40, you made some really good connections. I like what you had to say there. I went back through and read Isaiah 40. I saw a few more connections. Um, First, there is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, That might be what the glory to be revealed to the whole world is in reference to in verse uh, 5, I think, of of Isaiah 40. And then uh, another connection I saw was our resurrection as followers of Christ. That might be in reference in Isaiah 40, verse 10, because it refers to the reward that is brought by the shepherd to do his work. So the shepherd comes, he says, you do his work, and you get a reward. Now, I think that might be perhaps the resurrection body of the Christian. Now, uh, a third connection is um, in Isaiah 40, verse 11, the shepherd is caring for the nursing lambs. And that might be a good connection for 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, where it says the Christian should be longing for the pure milk of the word. Again, not just the spoken word, but also from the source of... Um, of, of life itself, Jesus Christ, the living word. And then connection number four, I saw in Isaiah 40 uh, verse 9, where it talks about lifting up your voice with good news. That could connect to what Peter will say in chapter 2 verse 9, about proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we'll get to verse 9. It's a doozy, but it's a good one. Good connections there. Uh, Verse 1, let's get to chapter 2 proper. Peter writes, So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Uh, Alex, why why would Peter have to tell his readers this? Yeah, why, why would he have to say, put these things aside? It's almost a given. You should put those things aside. However, it is likely that these exiled Christians were struggling with these sorts of temptations, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And that may actually be somewhat in regard to how they are treating their fellow believers. Because Peter mentioned verse 22, we've, we've been refined now, we've been purified for a sincere love of the brethren, and so fervently love one another from the heart. Maybe they're struggling with that. Sometimes stressful circumstances like the ones they're under can make us act out of a part of ourselves that is not how we want to act, not our true self. And so Peter says, no, that's not who you are. Who you are now are purified hearts for sincere love of the brethren. But considering the rest of the letter, their current circumstances, these Christians, they also needed to abandon these behaviors, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, even when it was aimed towards their oppressors and towards their persecutors. And that'll be next week's podcast because uh, Peter has difficult things to say regarding your government overlords, your masters of the slaves, your unbelieving husbands for the believing wives. So we'll get there. What do you think, Nick? I'm a big fan of the Twilight Zone and one classic Twilight Zone episode. That's right. One classic episode is uh, people are the same everywhere. I think 
it's also true that Christians are the same everywhere. There were Christians then, there are Christians now who struggle with these particular sins. Wayne Grudem in his commentary on 1 Peter says, All these sins aim at harming other people, whereas love seeks the good of others. And so all these sins similarly will hurt the Christian. They will hinder his or her growth and quite possibly jeopardize their salvation unless they're abandoned immediately. One interesting note here about these, uh, this list, right there in the middle of them, hypocrisy. Uh, that's actually plural in the original language, hypocrisies. And uh, so what would that be? Well, hypocrisies both toward God and toward people. Hmm. What would it look like? Well, hypocrisy toward God would be professing love for God, professing faith in Christ and and sincerity in worship, and yet you're pretending at all of these. That would be hypocrisy toward God. What hmm. about hypocrisy toward people? Well, if you only love people in word and in talk and not in deed and in action, that would be hypocrisy toward people. And so I think uh, a very interesting way Peter has of, of listing all these things, hypocrisies, uh, there's some depth there, I think. Let that be a note to our listener to go back and uh, make sure you've checked out our podcast on the book of James, because James speaks a lot to this, to a similar group of uh, Christians under persecution. What else do we have, Nick? Verse 2, uh, like newborn infants long for the spir- pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Uh, Alex, talk for a moment about what, what does it mean to grow up into salvation, Yeah, this thought continues uh, something that was already begun in chapter 1. We, in chapter 1, we saw salvation is a future, uh, has a future component, right? A present component, but also a future component. Because Peter says salvation will be revealed, that's future tense, in the last time. uh, Chapter 1, verse 5. Salvation is the outcome, that's future tense, of our faith. Chapter 1, verse 9. And now salvation is what we grow into. Again, that's future tense. So all of this makes perfect sense once we view salvation as the umbrella of our faith, which covers two things, both the moment of our regeneration, which is important, but also it covers the continuing sanctification, the process by which we are made Christ-like. And the illustration I like to use for this is that of being clothed with Christ. You know, if I were to put my three-piece suit onto my newborn son, it would not fit him. Uh, It would maybe wrap around him like a blanket. Uh, But as he grows, year after year, his arms and his legs will begin to slip into the jacket and the pants. And eventually, when he is full, full grown, he will fill out the suit completely. So that suit, which was fitted to my body, never changed. But my son changed until he fit the suit as well. And so it is with Christ and our salvation. Our salvation doesn't change, but we grow into salvation until we fill out the righteousness which was originally fitted to Christ's body, but now covers us. And so the growing into salvation is the part I've been calling sanctification. And if you want to think about it... uh, as, it a, as an equation, regeneration plus sanctification equals salvation. That's the umbrella term, salvation. It covers both. Any thoughts there, Nick? 
Well, it's, it's interesting to me that um, that uh, phrase that you may or might grow up into salvation. Um, the, the verb there is, is a passive voice verb, um, which means that the subject, which would be these Christians, are being acted upon by an external agent, presumably God, right. that it's God who uh, enables us to grow up into salvation. Um, that's just a very interesting uh, thing that, that Peter is putting his readers in mind of, uh, that uh, uh, we, do, we earnestly desire or longingly desire for that milk uh, that's that's we're active in that. It's an active voice uh, verb there. But here, the growing, we are we are made to grow. We are caused to grow, and, and it's God who does that. So, I'm reminded of another metaphor that's used uh, about you know Paul saying one person plants, another person waters, but it is God who gives the increase. Exactly. It's it's very. Uh, it's a very important picture. It's balanced. It's got all the parts in there. God does the part you can't do, <laughs> but you do the parts you can do. Nick, talk to us for a second about verse 3. There are some verses, some passages that Peter alludes to, um, so why don't you unpack that for us? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good... You might just read right past that and not realize that there there's apparently an allusion here to Psalm 34, verse 8, which reads, Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Again, Peter no doubt has the whole psalm in mind. In fact, he's going to have an extended quotation from Psalm 34 and an application of it, uh, specifically Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, in chapter 3 of his book. He'll, he'll do that in 3, verses 10 through 12. But uh, this is a psalm of David, Psalm 34 is, when he feigned madness so as to save himself from Abimelech. That's a narrative which is briefly retold in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 and following. Now, when you read Psalm 34, you get the distinct impression, at least I did, you get a distinct impression of relief, following a a harrowing experience, one in which Yahweh showed up and delivered David, he says in verse 4 of Psalm 34, uh, since he is a God who redeemed his people. And so uh, such themes of salvation and redemption, those are obviously present. We just talked about growing up into salvation there in verse 2. You go back to chapter 1, and salvation is mentioned in verses 5 and 7. Redemption is mentioned in verses 18 and 19. Uh, and and uh, purification and rebirth, which is also mentioned there at the end of chapter 1 and also earlier in chapter 1, that would also entail these concepts of salvation and redemption as well. Now, Peter is uh, building on that rebirth motif uh, from 1 and verse 23, and he compares these Christians, as we just saw in verse 2, to newborn infants who are to long for the pure spiritual milk. That's a symbol of God's goodness in saving and, and redeeming them. And whereas David entreated the worshiper to taste and see, and both of those are imperatives, Peter acknowledges the present reality of Christians as one in which they have tasted the goodness of God, even Yahweh, 
in salvation, redemption, rebirth, purification, all those things he's already been talking about. So David invited the worship to have their uh, the worshiper to have their own experience with Yahweh, taste and see, it's command. Peter appeals to the Christian's common experience. Since you have tasted is literally how it reads there. Uh, that's the grounds for them to press on and continue to crave pure spiritual milk. In addition, one should not miss the context of Psalm 34 and Peter's exhortation to these Christians. Whereas David changed his behavior, as the superscription reads, he pretended to be insane, as we're told in 1 Samuel 21 and verse 13. Uh, that is, he feigned madness and the Lord delivered him. These Christians are exhorted to crave spiritual milk. And in fact, the word there, uh, logicon, we get our English logic from it, logical and that sort of thing. This is the reasonable, logical milk. And so when these people became Christians, they fled the madness of unbelief for the safe shores of sanity, which is divine mercy. Uh, divine mercy, by the way, something Peter talked about in one three. He'll pick it up again in two verse ten. We'll talk about that more in a moment. They attain this, of course, by faith. However, uh, looking back at logicon, there, it's perhaps best understood, and as it's translated, spiritual, because Peter is emphasizing that milk metaphor. One might also make a connection to uh, pure, and the preceding verse exhorting Christians to put away all deceit, and, and that, that would be the impure stuff. And of course, the contrast is drawn to David's behavior in order to save his own neck with Achish. And so uh, he engaged in some deception, and now here, you need to leave off the deception, and you need to pursue the pure things. Uh, so uh, a lot of connections here with Psalm 34. It seems as though that was at least one significant text that was at the forefront of Peter's mind as he is crafting this epistle. Well, what do you think, Alex? Well, that's, that's certainly a good background summary of Psalm 34. It's a lot to think about. Um, as you said, that will help us again when we get to chapter 3. Uh, the milk metaphor, I was reminded that that's also used in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. And in that, it's an exhortation for the Christian to be more spiritually mature in their understanding of the faith, moving on from milk to solid food, and reminding the audience uh, just a little bit later in chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, that um, if they have tasted the good word of God, almost similar to what uh, Peter says here, then endure, do not fall away, do not give up, keep going. And so that's, uh, I think, has some connection to the growing into salvation in the passive verb tense you mentioned about how God is acting on us. Well, what do we do? A big part of what we do as we grow into salvation is simply we endure. We keep on keeping on. Nick, talk to us for a second about verses uh, 4 and even 6 through 8. There is... The mention of a stone which the builders have rejected, that has become the cornerstone over which people stumble. So uh, what, is the, what is the stone? Who is the stone? Yeah, uh, Jesus is the living stone because he is the son of the living God. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 6, and such stone Christology, as some have styled it, that was prominent in the early church. 
But especially in Peter's preaching, uh, you go back to Acts 4 and verse 11. He is explicit. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. During his earthly ministry, during the lifetimes of the original audience, uh, and even today, Christ was and is rejected by people. Uh, that's, I, I think, the strength of the perfect tense there for uh, the rejection that Peter talks about here. Uh, on, the, uh, on the other hand, Peter draws a contrast between the world's view and God's view of Christ. God esteems Christ as chosen and precious. That is, he is elect. He is highly valued. Uh, and uh, the world rejects uh, the Son. Uh, and by the way, rejected, chosen, precious, these are all vocabulary words from Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah 28, verse 16. These are texts which Peter will quote in the verses of he- ahead of us, uh, and, and we'll deal with those in turn. But um, uh, Jesus, Jesus is the stone. Uh, that's my conclusion. What do you think, Alex? You know, doesn't that just show you how Peter, right, this uneducated fisherman, how he so masterfully works this out, how he's incorporating the ideas of a passage that he's going to quote before he quotes it and yeah. then ties it into what he'll say even after it. And so these um, these these markers that he puts along the way where he sort of preps them for it and then uses it to build onto his exhortation after the quotation so you have the rock the stone the precious cornerstone that's jesus jesus himself quotes psalm 118 which uh, you said a lot of connection there with those vocabulary words especially verse 22 and when jesus quotes that during his earthly ministry which you can find in matthew chapter 21 verses 42 through 45 We see that not only did Jesus quote it, but the passage in Matthew also says that the chief priests and the Pharisees understood that Jesus was applying the passage to them, that they were the builders who are rejecting him, and therefore their rule over God's people would be taken away from them and given to another people. That's interesting with the direction Peter will go in verse 9. This new people of God's kingdom, that's the Christian. That's the church. And we'll speak to that in 1 Peter 2, 9. But Jesus also mentions something not found in Isaiah or the Psalms. So again, looking back at Matthew 21, he says that that stone would fall on top of certain people, and that it would crush them and scatter them like dust. Matthew 21, verse 44. And that imagery, that picture, that's taken directly from Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, where Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, he has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. Daniel has to interpret it for him. And in the interpretation, uh, in the dream, there's a rock that's not cut from uh, by human hands. And it's cut out of the side of a mountain. And then it falls down on the statue And in the interpretation, we know that that statue represents the kingdoms of the world. The statue is pulverized, and its dust is blown into the wind like chaff. And then, after that, the stone begins to grow and fills the entire earth. 
So there is something there that Jesus is connecting to. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, Peter will quote that. But that passage also mentions that Yahweh will become a sanctuary for his people. And in the Septuagint of Isaiah 8.14, the word is hagiasma, meaning sacred space. So here we've circled back to sanctification, because sanctification, which is the Greek hagiasmos, that's the process of becoming sacred space. So Yahweh's new temple, where his presence dwells, is first the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and then also all the living stones connected to that cornerstone. You lay the cornerstone down first, and from there you get all of your geometry, all of your angles, and your connecting pieces. Those are the Christians. So Paul puts it quite simply. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 6.19, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 2.21-22. So the stone is both Jesus and the church as living stones now connected together. The people who stumble over the stone were the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus and the ones pulverized by the stone and blown into the wind are the kingdoms of the earth which refuse to enter the kingdom of God. So that, that's, that's some rich background that should be in the forefront of your mind as we make our way to verse 9. Because verse 9 is really where all of this uh, comes to, comes to a, a climax. And so we're working our way there. Hmm. Nick, verses 6 through 8. Peter, he quotes some more things. What verses does Peter quote? How does he use them in his argument? Buckle up. Here we go. Verse 6. Once more, Peter, he appeals to Scripture, in this case Isaiah 28, verse 16. It's a text early Jewish interpreters regarded as uh, messianic. Carson, in uh, his commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, notes that Peter's quotation differs from both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, and J. Ramsey Michaels, in his commentary on 1 Peter in the uh, World Biblical Commentary, he actually notes the differences between the uh, Septuagint uh, and and Peter's quotation here. Um, and what's interesting is Peter, in his quotation here of Isaiah 28.16, he actually differs from Paul's quotation of Isaiah 28.16, <laughs> uh, where he quotes it, like, for example, in, in Romans 9, and verse 33. One example would be, Paul has, will not be put to shame, a future indicative, whereas Peter has a double negative before an aorist subjunctive. That's the technical stuff. Um, uh, But the bottom line is, it's very fascinating the way Peter and Paul will quote the same text, and yet it comes out a little different, Um, which kind of begs the question, um, did, did Peter adapt Paul. Romans, of course, was written before 1 Peter. We know Peter read Paul. Uh, He says as much in 2 Peter. Uh, Did uh, they both kind of freely adapt the Septuagint? Were they working from different manuscripts? Were they playing off a common exegetical tradition? There's really no way of knowing. (laughs) I do know they were freely adapting the Septuagint. (laughs) Probably, maybe, who knows? We don't know, right? That's the thing. Um, what we do know is Peter had a robust Christology uh, and an ecclesiology. Christ is the 
cornerstone chosen and precious around which the rest of the building, that spiritual house, in other words, the church, is built. And so, therefore, Peter, as he explains, the Christian's faith is well-placed in Christ, though these Christians were an oppressed minority, they were despised by society at large, the honor is for you, he says there in verse 7, because of their faith. Whatever honor or preciousness the stone has is for you who believe. His worth is their worth. His honor is theirs also. Okay, what about the next quotation there in verse 7, 7b? Peter quotes Psalm 18 and verse 22. As Wayne Grudem notes, uh, the point of the quotation is to show that those who rejected Christ have been proved exactly wrong by God's exaltation of him to the place of greatest prominence. Textually, Peter does quote verbatim from the Septuagint. It's an accurate, in fact, a highly literal translation of the Masoretic text. Peter had heard Jesus quote this verse about himself during his earthly ministry, as you explained, Alex, just a few minutes ago, uh, from the Matthew 21 text, but is also in Mark 12, verse 10, Luke 20, verse 17. It is a text which did have messianic overtones and was applied by Christ to his rejection by the Jewish people, a point which Peter emphasizes in his preaching, as we saw in Acts 4 and verse 11. Here, though, in the Asia Minor context, Peter seems to have in mind his readers' non-Christian and probably pagan neighbors, though their neighbors are disbelieving, and perhaps even through their disbelief, Christ has been vindicated as the cornerstone. Verse 8, Peter goes back to Isaiah, this time 8, verse 14. Such a close connection between these Isaiah texts is achieved by no other Jewish interpreter except for the Apostle Paul, who was apparently the first Jewish exegete to unite them, even quoting them together as though they were a single verse in Romans 9 and verse 33. However, while Paul did it first, Peter did it the most. (laughs) This quotation makes this section the passage Here's 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. This passage has the most stone quotations in one place. Again, textually, the uh, Masoretic text is explicit that it is Yahweh who is the stone that causes people to stumble. He will become is how that verse begins. The Septuagint, a little more ambiguous. You will not encounter him as, and the rest of the verse. Peter's quotation, at best, follows the Septuagint loosely, but some prefer to see this more as an illusion, since Peter makes the cornerstone the stone of stumbling and rock of offense, thereby equating Christ with the stone, the rock, which is what Paul does also in Romans 9.33. And that actually follows a Masoretic text reading. I'm inclined to see Peter here relying upon the Hebrew text for his quotation, albeit a bit loosely. Originally, it was Yahweh of hosts who became a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Now, Jesus is the stumbling stone and offensive rock, as well as a sanctuary for those who believe. That's the honor, I think, that we're we're to connect to as well from verse 7. This is an instance where Christians readily identified Yahweh with Christ and had no problem with it because they understood Christ was God of the glory of God the Father. So, uh, those are, man, again, just dense, <laughs> dense quotations from Scripture here. 
that Peter, I think he drags the context with it, and he applies it to Christ and his readers in a very specific way. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I'll definitely give the amen to here is one of the many instances where Christians readily identified Yahweh with Christ. Um, and that is, you know, the basis of the incarnation. It's God wrapped up in human flesh. And uh, just a quick note for the for the fellow Bible nerds. I know this. Nick knows this. I just want to make it clear as a reminder to our audience that uh, when we say the the Masoretic text, the he, uh, you know, the Masoretic text didn't come about until four or five hundred A.D. That's when the Masoretic scribes uh, sort of came about. Uh, but sometimes we say Masoretic text just to mean like Hebrew, right? And so there are Hebrew texts that exist from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are from you know, two to three hundred BC. There are Hebrew texts that the Septuagint writers were looking at when they produced the Septuagint. There are Hebrew texts that the Masoretes were looking at before they produced the Masoretic text. And so there are these different uh, textual traditions that we have in mind when we start talking about manuscripts and translations. And so just just to to clarify, so the uh, the the passage here in First Peter two eight. Here's where I'll, I'll I'll differ from Nick. I will add that I don't think Peter was applying Psalm one hundred eighteen to the pagan population of Asia Minor. And here's my thinking on this: because we have the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. The builders are the the chief priests and Pharisees who rejected Jesus as the Christ. And I don't think. Peter is now broadening that rejection to the greater unbelieving Gentile population. You got to remember in the book of Acts, we see large Jewish populations in many parts of Asia Minor. And it's not just Asia Minor, you know, Peter's writing to, it includes Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, which is Asia Minor, Bithynia. And in these areas, there are large pockets of Jewish populations. And they, they meet at synagogues. And when Paul goes to these towns, he starts out in the synagogue and he receives uh, some reception. But then after he preaches Jesus as the Christ, uh, he receives also a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback. And the people who rejected Paul's message and the message of, of Christian uh, 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 missionaries, if you will, those Jewish populations in the book of Acts, we see them using their influence within those cities to launch a persecution against Paul and against the churches which he established from town to town. And so it's highly relevant to the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor and these other areas that Peter writes to. It's relevant to them to understand why the Jews were so fervently persecuting them. It is because they have rejected Yahweh. They have rejected the cornerstone. They have rejected Yahweh incarnate in Jesus Christ. And behind such persecution is the spirit of Antichrist, which roamed the earth then and still abounds today. That deep, dark core that darkness has a hold of within someone. That it's not just a Paul, we disagree with you that Jesus is the Christ. But a, Paul, we not only disagree with you, we want to kill you. 
and we want to chase you from town to town and also to kill everybody who believes what you have just said. That's demonic. And so there is, uh, I think, high relevance to, to the situation these Christians would have been under. So that's my take. Nick, uh, the second half of verse 8 what does Peter mean when he says that people were destined to stumble over the stone of stumbling? Yeah, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. And I guess, you know, how you interpret that is dependent upon what's being destined there. But um, right, right. it appears to be Peter's way of saying the prophecies of Isaiah and Psalm 118 are fulfilled in the Christian age. Those who disbelieve and disobey the word stumble over the stone, which is Christ, just as was predicted by Isaiah and the psalmist. In addition, such behavior of the unbelieving is paralleled with God's action of laying or setting his stone in Zion. Verse 6 uh, and verse 8 kind of form of uh, form an inclusio here, what's called an inclusio, where um, if you look at, where am I? Here it is. If you look at verse 6, behold, I am laying, that word there for laying is uh, connected to the word there for uh, destined. Do I got that right? Uh, yes. So, uh, so there, there's a connection here where the work of God is is being done all the way around, even uh, not only with the laying of the stone, but also with the destining work that's happening here. Again, another passive verb, uh, uh, just point that out. So while humans are responsible for their unbelief, their disobedience, uh, their continued stumbling, God is the agent of their appointment. Uh, destined, as I mentioned in the passive voice there, um, even as he is undoubtedly the subject of appointing a stone in Zion. Uh, both acts could be viewed as a single divine appointment. When God appointed Christ as the stone to be rejected, he simultaneously appointed disobedient unbelievers to stumbling. Uh, McKnight uh, aptly observes, God's act of appointing Jesus as the living stone has become both honor for believers and judgment for unbelievers. This was God's design, and everything happens according to his will. So uh, my take on, on what Peter is saying there at the end of verse 8, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I'm going to spin out for a minute on the whole destined thing, because this is a big point of contention in the theological world today and even in the past. You know, what is being destined here? And that's uh, something I'd like to address because I'm not Reformed. I'm not Calvinistic. I don't think uh, in terms of predestination in, in that way. So this is a great passage, I think, to talk about the idea of what is called corporate election. And just to give you a, an illustration, if it's raining outside, it's pouring rain, and I tell everyone walking by my house, come on inside where you'll be dry then my house has become a location where refuge from the rain can be enjoyed. That's kind of like corporate election. Anyone in my house finds shelter from the rain. However, some people walk on by. They claim to be fine in the rain. They don't mind. They don't need to dry off. They don't need to find shelter. And that's their choice. For whatever reason, they make that choice. The critical part is to understand that I did not choose who would come into my house or not. 
I simply chose the location that I would use as an offer to, uh, to provide refuge for all. So choosing the location, that's corporate election. And that is what God did for humanity by choosing the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, as the location of the elect. Thereby, necessity then remains all who refuse to enter that location, which we could then call corporate condemnation. In other words, since God chose the location for the elect to enter into, that by default leaves all other locations as non-elect locations. Here's another analogy, this time from Jesus. There are two gates, a broad one that leads to destruction and yet many still choose to enter, and a narrow one that leads to life that few seem to find. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. That kind of sounds like a choice, right? You choose to enter through the narrow gate. But where the gate leads, that's not a choice. That path beyond each gate is a predestined path, an appointed path. So corporate election refers to the unchangeable destination of each path, not the predestination of which soul will enter either gate. And so in short, no one is destined to disobey, but the disobedient are destined to stumble because of the path they have chosen through their disobedience. So these are natural spiritual consequences. And that's kind of, I think the most I'll talk about that right now, but that's sort of the introduction into the corporate election idea. Any thoughts there, Nick? Well, corporate corporate rejection would probably be the thing that's in view here, right? Because this is the disobedient. Right. Yeah. Yep. And that's probably a better way of saying what I said, corporate condemnation, corporate rejection. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, a better. There's a path chosen by those who reject the cornerstone, and that path is an unchangeable path that leads to destruction. Don't go down that path. <laughs> so, uh, verse 9, Nick, now we're getting into the to the extra deep stuff. Everything has kind of been leading up to this verse, and things will trail off from this verse, but this this is a center point of Peter's letter. This is a big part that we need to focus on here, and we're going to break it up into smaller parts. So, verse 9 says, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whoo, there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. So let's (laughs) take it one chunk at a time. Nick, how are Christians a chosen race? Talk about that. Yeah, so this this also is uh, another discussion about how Peter uh, quotes from, utilizes the Old Testament yeah. In order to apply those concepts and principles to his uh, readers, and so uh, these verses nine and ten are dense. They are packed with Old Testament allusions and quotations, and we should notice the contrast between believers. You are uh, Christians, in other words, and contrasted with unbelievers, the disobedient stumblers of the end of verse 8 there, as we talked about. Whereas believers have accepted Christ, unbelievers have rejected Christ. Whereas Christians believe in Christ, unbelievers refuse to believe in him. Peter then builds upon that contrast with linguistic links to these several Old Testament phrases and concepts. So the first one here, Christians are a chosen race. This is a phrase which is borrowed from Isaiah 43 and verse 20, 
And you can especially see the linguistic links when you look at the Septuagint, the Genos Eclecton. Uh, that's verbatim, right? Same, same exact phrase. In Isaiah 43, God is promising to undo curses brought upon the land. Waters in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, even providing drink for his chosen people. The reversal of the curse leading to blessing, that recalls Deuteronomy 30 and the post-exile blessings that Yahweh would bestow upon penitent Israel. Peter adapts that phrase, and he applies it to Christians dispersed in the wilderness of exile, shall we call it? They are God's chosen people, genetically, genos, genetically related through the blood of Christ. Uh, so that's a bit about chosen race. Uh, for me, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, Isaiah 43 certainly echoes the salvation moment of crossing the Red Sea, of God's providence for his saved people as they wandered in the wilderness. And for Peter to call these Christians a chosen race, that would then parallel our own and even greater moment of salvation, uh, which was Jesus Christ on the cross. And God's providence to his people as we wander in the world while not being of the world. These elect exiles that Peter addresses the letter to. For the Jew, right, for the Israelite, the exodus was a new creation moment. Just like the Spirit of God subdued the waters, hovered over it, the waters of darkness in Genesis chapter 1, so too God's wind, which is the same word for spirit, by the way, came and split the Red Sea and held it back until he could bring forth his chosen people into a new state of existence. And yet now, it is the creation who has been uh, born again out of water and spirit, brought into a new state of humanity by the word of God, Jesus Christ, who was not overcome by the darkness. They crossed the Red Sea in darkness as well, by the way. So we're not just saved humans when we talk about Christians, when we talk about the church. We're new humans. We are separate and apart from the rest of humanity. We are a chosen race. We are now of Christ's race, the Christian, and we're no longer Adam's race. And that's that new creation imagery and that theme packed into something like this when he says you're a chosen race. So, Nick, talk to us for a second. How are Christians then a royal priesthood? Yeah, this is a phrase taken from Exodus 19.6. Again, uh, the Septuagint phrasing seems preferred here, the Basileon Hiratuma. Uh, Christians are a royal priesthood. The, the, and the, that linguistic link, by the way, is, is exact in its terminology. You go back to Exodus, and uh, between the actual Exodus event and the giving of Torah— the Hebrew nation is called a royal priesthood there in Exodus 19. Similarly, Christians have experienced an exodus that's been enacted by Christ and have been made a priesthood. Uh, in fact, the universal priesthood of Christians already been mentioned back in verse 5, to be a holy priesthood to offer uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that idea of priesthood is combined with the regal aspect due to our relation to the king of kings. Right. So this priesthood serves the king of kings, royal That's right. priesthood. Uh, what do you think, Alex? 
Yeah, you know, as you say that, it's even another connection to the Christian acceptance of Jesus as Yahweh, because it's it's Yahweh who is the head of the royal priesthood Israel in the Exodus passage, and now it's Christ Jesus, uh, the head of the royal priesthood. So in addition to the royal aspect, uh, there is a future inheritance aspect because of being a part of the royal household, the children of God. You get verses like 1 Timothy 2.12 that says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. That is future, reign with Christ. It is fitting for royalty to rule, the royal family of God. We will rule the earth. The earth is our inheritance. But first, we have a job to do. And that's the priesthood aspect. That speaks to the great commission of the church. We are to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the possession of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, you know, in their translation, it says into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in the Greek, it's ace to onoma. And that means uh, into ace into the possession of your transferring property you're going from under the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son now you belong to the father son and the holy spirit which then adds that person to the chosen race of god's new creation so each of these things even builds one on top of the other so if israel is god's royal priesthood in exodus 19 verse 6 but they stumble now over the cornerstone of christ are they still the royal priesthood? No, they are not. That title of royal priesthood is only retained for those Israelites who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And that now also includes the Gentiles. And so as always, though, it's not to say that things couldn't change. Belief and repentance can add the Jew or the Israelite back into the royal priesthood. And that's what we hope for all people, even even Israel, even Jews. So, Nick, how are Christians a holy nation? Yeah, holy nation, a phrase that recalls Exodus uh, 19 and verse 6 again, the ethnos agion. In Exodus 19, again, the people, they're on the verge of receiving the law. They're on the precipice of entering into the land, though that'll be delayed due to disobedience. The emphasis on holy points to obedience and mission and self-identity in relation to the holy God. Peter takes that term, that, that phrase, holy nation, and he applies it to the church, to these Christians, uh, a church, by the way, which is composed of Jews and Gentiles. They now make up a single nation set apart by the Holy Spirit, as right. we saw back in 1 verse 2. Right. And they are set apart as a holy nation unto the holy God for obedience, mission, and uh, self-identity in relation to their God. So um, that's a that's a bit about the holy nation bit here from me. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think one also must remember how nations came about in the first place, from the biblical worldview anyway. And it came about through the division of language brought about by the unholy singularity which mankind made for themselves at the Tower of Babel. And so when you get to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit starts enabling the church to speak in other languages, which allowed for the beginning of the reversal of Babel. And now that unholy race 
and nation of mankind at Babel will be turned into a chosen race and a holy nation through Christ. This is unity through God's ways, not unity through man's ways. Israel was the type and shadow of that plan of God to reconcile the world. But now those who have been made new by Christ have become the substance and the antitype of God's redemptive planning. So that's a bit of what I think about the holy nation. So Nick, here we are on this last identity marker. How are Christians God's possession? Uh, it's a phrase that once again invokes Exodus 19, this time verse 5, the laos periosios, um, and it's also echoed in Isaiah 43:21. The people, laos, I, or leon there, I formed for myself. So not an exact uh, quotation, uh, not an exact phrasing from the Old Testament, like the previous phrases were, but the, the linguistic ties are, are strong. Exodus 19, that's, again, Yahweh's promise that Israel would be his special people if they obey him, characterized by, uh, uh, in, the, in the previously mentioned phrases, as uh, royal priesthood, holy nation, as we've already seen. Isaiah 43 is promising the exiled people, they will once again be God's special people. And so, again, here's, here's Peter, and he is applying this to the church, to these Christians, the elect exiles that he is writing to. They similarly will belong to God as his special people. Christians belong to God, as you mentioned earlier, Alex, uh, quoting from uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. At the same time, this phrase leans forward to the future. At the end of the exile will be vindication for the people of God, and it will become manifest that they are indeed God's people. Everyone will know that. Um, and so... Uh, that seems to be the, the, what we're to recall from our Hebrew Bible uh, as, as Peter is working through this. What do you think, Alex? You know, uh, continuing the thought that I had left off with concerning the holy nation, you have a people for God's own possession. You know, after the Tower of Babel, Yahweh had no people. Sometimes scholars call this the disinheritance of the nations because he had divided mankind for their unholy singularity and splitting them up into 72 peoples, each overseen by an angel or uh, sometimes called the son of one of the sons of God. That's Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9, depending on whether you're seeing the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls. But after choosing Abraham out of Babylon which was Chaldea, and his miraculous offspring Isaac, and then Jacob, Yahweh claimed for himself a people, a people for his own possession. And the theme of Israel as God's possession is abundant not only in the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Deuteronomy. You can go see chapter 4, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 14, verse 2, chapter 26, verse 18. And the Hebrew... Uh, word for possession in those verses is the word segula, which denotes someone's cherished treasure, like a savings account. The Greek translation of segula is the word periousios, which you mentioned, and one can almost hear the word in that periousios, the word precious. Precious is in there. And so like we've seen in the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, these are all titles within the identity of Old Testament Israel. Yet, 
You get to the New Testament and you look at places like here in 1 Peter, but also in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, Christ has purified a people for his own possession. That's Christ has done that. That's those who belong to Jesus Christ. They've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. The notion that some people have today under a dispensational theology that one's Jewish ethnicity apart from and without belief in Jesus as the Christ. Ah, but because they're Jewish, they're still qualified as God's possession. That is wrong. That is not true. And passages like this in 1 Peter 2 show that abundantly clear. The remnant, though, of believing Jews, they are the ones who found the substance of their ancestors' belief now in Christ Jesus. And the believing Gentiles were added into that group. So that's my thoughts on the possession, God's possession of his people. Now it says, It's so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Nick, tell us a little bit about what does it mean to proclaim his excellencies. Out of the Christian's unique identity flows the unique purpose that they have in the world. So because you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession, you now have this unique purpose, uh, calling, mission, however you want to style that. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Um, once more, the connections to Isaiah 43.21 are evident, though they are few. Um, the uh, Let's call it the Hebrew text, since uh, we made the uh, lens adjustment earlier, uh, that they might declare my praise and the Septuagint there, aritas, uh, that's the linguistic connection, especially here, that Peter uh, keys in on. Uh, the deliverance of Yahweh's people out of exile will be for the praise of Yahweh. It's a manifestation of his mercy and his might. Peter's elect exiles, they've been delivered out of darkness and into light through Christ, through their Messiah. Such deliverance, that is a, a manifestation of God's power and is therefore excellent, and it is worthy of announcing to people. Christians proclaim God's praise, and we speak out. We tell others about. That's the idea there of proclaim. Uh, we speak out about God's curious dealings in the plan of salvation. The, uh, the darkness light motif here. That's also testified to in Isaiah 9 and verse 2, though at best it's something that Peter is alluding to. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. God is the one who calls people out of darkness into light through Messiah, through Christ. And indeed, Isaiah 9, verse 6 points to the child that would be born, the son given whose kingdom would be eternal. A very well-known text that's often read and preached from during Christmas, right? Right. Peter says that child, that son, has come and was calling a people out of darkness into light. Right. Uh, and and we get to partner in that grand divine mission uh, as uh, as we minister and as we proclaim. Uh, and, and even probably as we pray, though that's not exactly mentioned here, uh, but I think you get a lot of stuff that kind of flows into that mission. At any right. rate, uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. The word proclaim here in the Greek is exangelo, used mainly 
in the Septuagint Psalms, which describe the praising of God, acknowledging his attributes, and telling others about him. This identity marker of the Christian, I think, will reinforce what Peter has to say later in chapter 3, verse 15, the verse about being ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and respect. The idea is that the good behavior of a Christian would open the door for a conversation to take place. One might ask, why do you bless those who curse you? Why do you let people treat you that way? And perhaps the answer could be, because I want to win you over for Christ's sake. Have you heard of the resurrection? Something like that. Well, Nick, in verse 10, the once you uh, were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Who does Peter have in mind when quoting Hosea? Yeah, uh, so verse 10 yeah, it has those strong connections to Hosea. Hosea 1, 6, and 7. Hosea 1, uh, 9, and 10. Hosea 2, 23. And in, in Hosea's day, so the context for uh, Hosea's prophecy, uh, Israel, they'd been taken into captivity. Judah was quickly on its way to a similar fate via Babylon. There would be no mercy, and they would cease to be God's people, hence not my people, Loami. Yet, even in the midst of the promise of judgment, there is a hint of hope as God's people would be children of the living God, uh, Hosea 1 and verse 10. They'd be gathered together again, he says in verse 11. Yahweh would show mercy on no mercy, and he would call his people my people who had been called not my people. That's 2.23 of Hosea. Peter may have had in mind his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh, as Paul does when he quotes Hosea in Romans 9, 22 and, and following. However, it seems more likely that what Peter is saying is that Jews and Gentiles, that is, Jews who had become Gentiles by the rejection of God, and Gentiles who were Gentiles by nature, they have both alike found their place among God's people, God's nation, God's priesthood, by their common faith in Christ. Now, uh, just briefly, backing off, just these two verses, right? But we could even stretch this back earlier in chapter 2. Peter, his string of Old Testament quotations is a remarkable reminder of God's unfathomable mercy toward his people. Though they lived as elect exiles in the midst of a hostile empire, they had the assurance that they were truly God's chosen people with all the blessings and all the privileges that go along with that calling. One other noteworthy feature of Peter's line of argumentation is the continuity he sees between the people of God under the Old Covenant and the people of God under the New Covenant. The distinctive identity markers which were applied to Israel and to Judah are equally applicable to the church and in many ways have found their true fulfillment in the church. Uh, so, Ooh, Peter, man, simple fisherman, right? <laughs> but he had a handle on his Old Testament, and he had a handle on the identity of Christ and his church. Uh, anything to toss in there, Alex? No, I like what you said. I, you did a good job. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, so says my English Standard Version. Alex, what are the dangers of fleshly lusts? 
Yeah, Peter shows no ambiguity here. Fleshly lusts, uh, in other words, sexual immorality, those things wage war against your soul. That's pretty hefty language, right? Against your soul. The danger lies in the destructive nature of these things against your very own soul. As we noted in our podcast on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God. You know, how many times do we ask, what, what's God's will for my life? This is one of those places where you get a clear answer. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Their sanctification again. But that's not the whole verse. The whole verse says that you abstain from sexual immorality. When we talk about sanctification, the process by which we are becoming more like Christ, we are talking about something more than a symbol. It's more than symbolic. We're talking about a spiritual reality. There is a real condition of your soul as sanctification takes place. To give you an illustration, God, you can picture him as like the master goldsmith, purifying us, removing the dross. But what if someone comes along and dumps more impurities and foreign metals into his gold? That devastates the process. It slows it down. Think about God as a master potter who's shaping us into what he sees as the perfect vessel in his mind. What if someone came along and dropped pebbles into the clay? Again, that would be a devastating setback for the progress of that vessel. And so it is with sexual immorality. That particular sin, for whatever reason, perhaps it's because this one is done with the body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. So he does distinguish. That particular sin especially wreaks havoc on one's sanctification, and it's given a special warning by Paul and Peter. By the way, Concerning sanctification, remember Hebrews 12, 14, no one sees God without sanctification. Any thoughts, Nick? Well, for just a, uh, if you want a, a vivid depiction of the, the war between the flesh and the spirit, you can read uh, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24, uh, where, where Paul highlights, the, he contrasts those two um, Entities that are at war with one another. It must be noted also that though Christians have the Spirit of God in them, they are not exempt from the fleshly desires, fleshly lusts, passions of the flesh. There's still a battle to fight every day against the flesh, the devil, the world, and that battle runs deep even to your soul, as uh, Peter styles it here at the end of verse 11. They wage war against your soul. Uh, the spiritual forces of darkness, they know exactly what buttons to push in order to tempt us. It could be lust. It could be anger. It could be greed. It could be uh, fornication, as you mentioned from First Thessalonians 4. What's interesting, you keep reading in that text, and what you find is uh, not just the, the big sins, right, as we kind of like to style them sometimes, but even some of the lesser things, like... Uh, transgressing or wronging your brother, loving your brother with brotherly love, uh, aspiring to live quietly, minding your own business, working with your hands, walking properly before outsiders. Yeah, all of these things uh, go into this. And Peter, he's already listed several lesser, quote-unquote, sins, right? Back in two one about you know malice and deceit and all that. But those are just as devastating as the big sins, right? And so we, we need to keep that in mind that that uh, sin 
is a, uh, a grotesque thing. It's why Peter is so adamant here. It, is, it wages war against your soul, and so you need to abstain uh, from those passions of the flesh. And just to, just to clarify, I don't think, Nick, that you're saying all sins are equal in every way, that there is distinction made between types of sin, but, right. that, but that all sin does have the capability of distorting your soul and, and pushing you away from God. Correct. All, all sin does the same thing by separating us from God, uh, twisting our spirit, our soul, but there are degrees of evil, right? Uh, and 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 degrees of sin. Yeah, I think you mentioned in another podcast, right? If sin is missing the mark, then um, then it, it's all. What'd you say? Sin is if, if sin is missing mark, and then there's how much you miss the mark. <laughs> yeah, sin, sin is missing the mark. Evil is the distance traveled. Yeah, evil is the distance traveled. That's right. And so I just say that because it's hard to forget that interview we did with Jimmy Hinton, right? And how we need to call things out for the depth of evil for which they actually are and not brush it off because, well, if you miss the mark, you miss the mark. You know, the, there, are, there are some consequences to sexual morality, especially the depth of evil that we heard from Jimmy Hinton, that are not the same as, you know, stealing a candy bar or something like that, right? talking about far different consequences, far different motives and things that go into intention and premeditation. And so that's that's my little uh, side rant. So there mm. you go. <laughs> no, that's good clarification. All right, let's uh, last verse we're going to deal with today is verse 12. Uh, Peter's just stated, uh, he continues his exhortation. He has stated it negatively, abstain. Now he states it positively. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So, uh, Alex, talk for a moment about what does Peter have in mind for the Christians' good deeds? What What is that day of visitation? And, and how would these Gentiles glorify God in that day of visitation? Yeah, there's a lot of things that I think are kind of in the subtext of this one verse. And so... Let's start with the first one. What are, what are the good deeds Peter has in mind? One could see this as good deeds in general, uh, but Peter certainly has a few particulars in mind when he uh, gets to uh, later chapters in the letter. Um, especially, you know, the audience, they have their own circumstances. And so Peter points out the importance in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, of hospitality, of service, and of godly speech, godly words, words that build up and don't destroy. Now, as far as the—so those are the good deeds I think he has in mind. As far as the day of visitation, what is the day of visitation? We mentioned in chapter 1 that Peter is looking ahead in many of those verses to the resurrection and return of Christ. It's uh, our resurrection, his return. It's sometimes difficult to tell if a particular passage is referring to the final judgment or just a temporal judgment against a nation. That's difficult when looking at the New Testament and even the Old Testament, but I tend to lean towards a final world judgment in this particular passage of Peter. And so if that's the case, how would these Gentiles then glorify God in that day, in the day of Christ's return? Well, they wouldn't unless they too had become Christians. And that's probably Peter's point. 
as the chosen race, as the royal priesthood, as the holy nation, as God's possession, as the proclaimers of God's excellencies, we have been given an ultimate prerogative. That is the salvation of the world. And Peter is talking about the powerful draw to Christianity and the conversion of Gentiles when the church lives out of their identity and their mission and their sanctification. And so I think Peter's talking about evangelism. He's talking about conversion of the world. Those Gentiles, they might become Christians if they see who you are and how you live. What do you think, Nick? Uh, So... uh I guess I'll just deal with uh, the latter two questions. I think you're right on with the good deeds. Uh, There are different theories about what the day of visitation is. Um, One is, of course, what you talked about, day of judgment. Uh, There are others who say it's it's some some time of persecution or or even times of persecution. Others think it's the destruction of Jerusalem, keying in on what he'll say later in chapter 4. Some say it's some time when the gospel is preached to the Gentiles. Given the options, I think I think we're right on the money here with this being the, the final day of judgment. Um, so I'll come at it from just a slightly different angle, I guess. Um, I guess I'm, I equate the, the glorification of God on the day of visitation by the Gentiles as similar to how every tongue, both the obedient and the disobedient, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father over in Philippians 2 verse 11. And either, either you confess Jesus in time to your salvation, or you will confess him at the end of time to your condemnation. And, and maybe that's a bit of what's going on here as well, is um, at the final day, God will be glorified, uh, even by the disobedient. And uh, here they're styled as uh, Gentiles. So um, wh- whether they in this life have believed in God or not, whether they recognized God or not, uh, they will uh, one day at the day of visitation. And that's when God will be glorified even in that. So, All right. Good notes. Good notes. Long, long pot. Aren't, listener, aren't you glad we didn't do the whole chapter? <laughs> <laughs> a three-hour mega podcast or something. Yeah, that would have been a marathon. And so... We're going to stop now at verse 12. We'll do the rest of the chapter next time. But we do have a featured creature. So this week's... Featured creature! (laughs) This week's featured creature is the uh, curious mention of uh, the word, name, title, description, whatever you think it is. It is the Hebrew Ketev. Ketev. So Nick, tell us what you think about Ketev. So, uh, four times, I guess I'll I'll deal exclusively with the biblical data as it's kind of presented. Um, Four times the term ketev is found in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, In Deuteronomy 32, verse 24, it is translated as pestilence. Um, In Psalm 91, verse 6, it is translated destruction. In Isaiah 28, 2, it is translated destroying and in Hosea thirteen fourteen, it is translated sting, though I think a better translation would probably be destruction. Destruction seems to be the, the standard way of uh, translating this term. Uh, most lexicons have this reading. Um, looking closer at the texts themselves, Deuteronomy thirty two twenty four, 
Psalm 98, verse 6, and Hosea 13, 14, could be understood poetically as the personification of some disease, perhaps a plague which wastes away and therefore destroys the body. Uh, the close proximity to Reshef, we've talked about Reshef before uh, in Deuteronomy 32, uh, as well as uh, the close proximity to uh, Dever in uh, Psalm 91 and Hosea 13, which are often taken as poetic references to demonic entities, that may indicate that Ketev has demonic or demonological implications. However, such a view is not necessary, especially when you consider that Hosea 13.14 is quoted in the New Testament. Paul quotes this text in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, leaning on, though not following exactly, the Septuagint. O Hades, where is your sting, is how Paul cites it. The word for sting, kentron, being the translation of the Hebrew term ketev, which is translated typically, again, as destruction. Death and Hades are definitely personification of death and the unseen realm of disembodied spirits, Hades. And that's actually common uh, to Paul. Uh, Paul does a similar thing with death and sin over in Romans 5. Uh, however, Paul, he gives the interpretation of his quotation of Hosea 13, in verse 56, he says, The sting, Kentron, the sting of death is sin. It is not that death's sting is a demonic entity. Death's sting, or destroying power, is sin. And so, uh, I'm inclined to see here, again, Ketev, the, the translation for it being destruction as accurate. However, Alex, you want to go a bit further, don't you? Yeah, come on now. It's the featured creature, Nick. We want to hear the supernatural side of this. <laughs> so, let's just lay out the facts, okay? Ketev is a well-known deity in the ancient Near East. When I say the ancient Near East, that's Israel's neighborhood, folks. That's their region. And they all know about Ketev. So that's a fact. Now, as mentioned in my rant on Reshef, there are biblical passages that point towards the idea that God uses bands of destroying angels to bring about judgment on a nation. In fact, that exact phrase is in Psalm 78, uh, verse 49, a band of destroying angels. You got to do something with that verse. What does that mean? So these destroying angels, they have powers, and the powers are described as the different kinds of plagues. In Psalm 78, it's the plagues that were brought on Egypt during the Exodus. Now, we today, in our, in our worldview, we view these plagues as natural phenomenon. As believers, yes, natural phenomenon under the control of Yahweh, but still natural, not supernatural. In the ancient Near East, including Israel, my friends, they thought of these plagues as powers controlled by supernatural beings. And that those supernatural beings, yeah, they are also under the control of Yahweh. So, two important passages to keep in mind. Psalm 78, verse 49, in the surrounding context. Also, Deuteronomy 32, verse 24, in the surrounding context. In Deuteronomy 32, 24, Ketev appears alongside with Reshef. Reshef is another well-attested deity in the ancient Near East, and that's just a fact. Now, what are the odds 
that y'all have two well-attested deities named in a single passage. That would be like me saying, hey, watch out for the flash and the light of the Green Lantern. And then you ex- then then I would expect you not to think about DC comic superheroes, <laughs> but just to just to re- think of a regular flash and a light that's colored <clears throat> that's colored green. Uh, no. <coughs> uh, I'm losing my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna keep uh, going though. Okay, <clears throat> Psalm ninety one is another important passage. Psalm 91, as a whole, focuses on Yahweh's protection of those who trust in him. This protection should be understood especially in terms of the spiritual realm, because in Psalm 91, verse 11, it says he commands angels to guard us. Where do angels guard us? In the spiritual realm. So I believe Psalm 91, especially verses 5 through 6, it seeks to answer the following question. Will evil spirits... Or avenging spirits, will they get me? Am I protected? The answer is, yeah, Yahweh protects you. If you trust in Yahweh, they will not get you. The phrase translated in that passage as the terror by night, (coughs) that has been documented as describing a night demon when comparing the underlying Hebrew with other Old Testament texts and similar creatures known in the ancient Near East. And we talked about this in our featured creature, Lilith. That's the night demon, Lilith. The arrow in Psalm 91 that flies by day, that may be an allusion to the deity Reshef, who shoots his arrows of plague. We talked about when we did our featured creature on Reshef. So the Hebrew word translated as pestilence, comes from the, the the name Deber. So that's another one in Psalm 91, Deber. And that's another god or demonic entity that is well attested in the ancient Near East. And we'll cover that one in a future featured creature. But finally, Psalm 91, my point is that when you get to Ketev, it gets translated as destruction. <clears throat> but look at the context of Psalm 91. It's got all these other things. It's got Reshef. It's got Deber. It's got Lilith. And so in the, na- in the context of so many other names that point to actual beings, I think we should not translate it as destruction. I think we should translate it as the proper name Ketev, especially when you look at the translation of the, uh, of the Hebrew text into Greek. When you look at the Septuagint, they don't translate it as destruction. They translate it as, uh, as a demon. So they recognize that the context was dealing with demonic entities. So Ketev... Like Reshef, what can we say about Ketev? Well, Ketev can be considered an underworld deity because in Ugaritic texts, Ketev appears to be a kinsman of another underworld deity, the deity Mot. Now, Mot gets translated as death, but Mot was an actual deity that people believed existed in the ancient Near East. And since we know that Reshef was also an underworld deity, the appearance of Ketev with Reshef and Ketev with Mot, it kind of points towards Ketev being an underworld deity. And so Ketev and Reshef appearing together in Deuteronomy 32.24, that kind of puts them in the same class or kind of deity. An association between Ketev and the power of the hailstorm, that could be based off of Isaiah 28 verse 2, 
So then, if, if hail is one of the symbols or powers of Ketev's destructive power, destructive abilities, um, you, can, you can see Ketev then in Psalm 78 verse 48 when it mentions the hailstorm of destruction alongside Reshef. And then there's this other thing about Ketev being associated with death and Sheol in Hosea 13, and you talked about that. I think that points towards Ketev being an underworld deity. And something to say about the underworld, right? In the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman worldview, um, the underworld um, in, in Greek was Hades, right? Well, Hades in Greek mythology was both the name of a deity and the underworld. It was both, not one or the other. It was both. And it's the same thing when you look at death in the ancient Near East. Death is, in the ancient Near East, mot. In the Greek, it's the god Thanatos, death, Thanatos, mot. Those are the names of both the deity and the the and the and dying, uh, uh, leaving this body, entering the realm of the disembodied, death. So it's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. So here's a quick note about Ketev's name. What could the name mean in and of itself? And one scholar noted that Ketev's name could etymologically be defined as that which is cut off. And so maybe there's some loose connection then between Ketev's um, uh, symbolic connection to not just destruction, but also the sword. And the sword is one of those many plagues that are brought upon a nation that is going to be destroyed. And so just as Reshef had an association with the bow... The bow and arrow, so and that kind of connects him in my mind to the white horseman of Revelation six. Ketev has this loose association with a sword in my mind that connects Ketev to the red horseman in Revelation six. And do I think all four horsemen have a connection to ancient Near Eastern deities? Yes, I do, and I'll tell you more about that next time. But all you need to know for now is that the next time you file an insurance claim for hail damage done to your property or your car. Uh, do not let them know that it may have been the cause of an ancient Near Eastern deity named Ketev, because insurance companies are notorious for not covering claims that are considered an act of God, or in this case, the gods. And that's our featured creature, Ketev. More information than you ever wanted to know about Ketev. <laughs> <laughs> Man, my throat hurts. That was hard to get through. I, I was losing my voice. Sorry. Well, that's <laughs> hey, you made it through. You, you powered through. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I guess that's going to do it. We're 90 minutes into this thing. We're going to pick up in verse 13 the next time. Uh, but in the meantime, can't get enough swordplay? You can search for us in the Google Play Music Store, as long as that's still around, um, and also uh, in the podcast, iTunes uh, uh, podcast. You can download episodes to your particular device. Take it with you on the go. Uh, and all that jazz. And um, if you have a question, we actually have a new swordplay uh, hotline. <laughs> uh, you can text questions in to area code 316-24-SWORD. That is 316-247-9673. Uh, and we will answer your question on air. If they also want to send it somewhere else, Alex, where can folks send questions to? Yeah, you can email swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast 
at gmail.com. Send your questions. We'd love to hear what you think. Call into the hotline, or you can text to the hotline, right, Nick? Is that the idea? That's right. Text, texting into the hotline number? And uh, you can do that. We'd love to read your questions on air. So we're here to help you to provide material sources, uh, content for helping you to understand God's word better and deeper. And so if you um, find that helpful, like Nick said, be sure to go into the uh, iTunes reviews and leave a review, a written review for the podcast. So we'll see you next time for First Peter chapter 2, the second half. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. We'll see you next time.